would argue that 50% of our patients are tachycardic. When you see tachycardia, like you've got to worry about the worst of the worst. You have to think about it. It doesn't mean it's there, but you have to think about it. I try to give them a structure that they can follow without having to just pull things out of thin air. Well, then I'm really glad I'm talking to you. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. This is an episode in the Thinking series. These are episodes where I talk with the sharpest minds in emergency medicine about how they think. And this time, we discuss how an EMS medical director asks her medics to bend their brains around the topic of tachycardia. Her name is Dr. Katherine Remick, and she is triple board certified in emergency medicine, EMS, and pediatrics. She's a professor at the University of Texas's Dell Medical School in Austin, but I met up with her at an EMS station in Hayes County, Texas, where she's the medical director. This is the first episode we've recorded at a station, so I hope you'll enjoy the occasional sounds of the medics in the background. Prior to recording, I shared with her my worst case ever. It involved a tachycardia. The case was an error in diagnosis, where I misunderstood a narrow complex tachycardia at a rate of 194 as being SVT. The patient wasn't in SVT. The patient was in heat stroke and sinus tachycardia, and it was a career-changing call that sent me down a path of reflection on human cognition and probably planted a seed for medic mindset. The short story is that the patient was in his 60s and they hadn't read the guideline in a textbook I had just studied. The guideline is probably one you know. It's the often repeated idea that someone's max physiological heart rate should not be above 220 minus their age in years. And as a new medic, being put under a bit of pressure with a critically ill patient, I hugged that guideline like a life vest and I turned it, unfortunately, into a hard and fast rule. This was Dr. Remick's response to that case. Hands down, the best teachers are the ones who have failed and struggled and made the wrong decisions and learned from it. And now they have so much wisdom. You should be grateful for the case. I actually am. Now, many, 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 many years later, in reflection, I realized how it changed my approach to patients, but also my approach to learners. And as a last born, I always had my older sister to just watch what she did and not do that. <laughs> uh, so hopefully I'm... I'm paying it back a little bit with this case. How do you differentiate sinus tachycardia EKG findings from supraventricular tachycardia or more specifically, AV nodal reentry tachycardia? The old teaching is all about rate. It's this, oh, well, if it's over 180, then it must be SVT or the teaching of 220 minus the age in years. If it's over that, it must be SVT. And we have to reframe that. Right. It's a tough road because historically that's not what most people come out of paramedic school learning. And you're even being generous with the 180 because HA uh, and some of their algorithms, you can see where they've written over 150 or 160 even. I mean, I think they're hoping that people will consider that it could be SVT, but un instead people create a if-then statement in their mind. Yeah, which is not uncommon. That's when you have to start asking questions of, well, how did we get here? And where the history becomes so important. Do you start like collecting little pieces of the story, just whatever you happen, whatever data you happen to get and start working off of that? Depending on how critical your patient is, you start with the assessment, but 
you know, while you're assessing the patient, you're asking questions that you're asking question of family or bystanders, or if the patient is not altered and is able to communicate, then you're asking the patient, but you want to know what, what their story is. And you got to ask thoughtful questions. It can't just be, tell me how you got here because sometimes patients don't divulge everything or they don't think something's pertinent, but it's our job as providers to make sure that we consider anything that might be pertinent. Yeah. You have to go hunt it down. You have to hunt for it. You do. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is just about being curious. The more curious we are, the more we're able to understand truly what's going on and also to be able to connect with our patients. And frankly, I think our patients expect it. They want us to be curious. They want us to ask questions. Right. They want to be heard. And they're okay. They expect even the taboo questions. Yeah. Well, and they don't want to divulge it unless they get asked. Right? They want you to ask. are they going to ask me? But they don't want to say it. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a good point. And a lot of people will use these mnemonics. There's dumbbells. There's AEIOU tips. Personally, I hate mnemonics because I always forget them. I always forget, oh, what was the U supposed to stand for? Oh, yeah, uremia. Me too. I don't remember AEIOU tips. There's so, there's so, I even have to say it slow. There's so many things under each letter, too. Well, and we live in a world of acronyms. Yeah. I mean, how many are there? Thousands. But when it comes to EKG teaching, we don't just stop at rate. We have to really think about all the different components of the EKG rate, rhythm, axis, intervals, hypertrophy, ST elevation, and really work our way through each of those components. And so if you're just stopping at rate, then you're lost. You haven't considered all of the assessments, all of the diagnostics. I guess I'll just go to the physiologic max that you mentioned, and only because I think it's important to talk about here, which is there's this standard teaching of it's 220 minus the age and years. That's just an estimate. We know that it tends to be at least 5 to 10% off. You know, when we talk about causes of tachycardia, there's extrinsic causes and there's intrinsic causes to the actual heart itself. We know that the automaticity of the SA node is between 60 and 100. And anything above 100, it's either something that is external that's activating that SA node, so some kind of adrenaline dump or some medication, toxin, substance of abuse causing that. We don't always know the reason why you might have an adrenaline dump. This is why it's so hard to differentiate even anxiety from a true tachycardia that's caused by some organic pathology. But when we get into the heart, uh, which is really one of your primary questions, is what makes it sinus? When the SA node fires, the electrical pathway, the electrical conduction continues from the SA node all the way down to the AV node. That is what makes it sinus. That common pathway, that standard pathway, and that standard vector. And that depolarization is what makes the P wave. If it's a sinus rhythm, then we should see that normal P wave in a normal vector. With normal being upright and rounded. Correct. If the tachycardia or if the rate is being generated from an aberrant site, then that P wave is not going to look normal. And that's where we get into this whole area of supraventricular tachycardias, which is really just an umbrella term for anything above the AV node or bundle of hiss. And so we have to sort of frame it in that way because you could have an aberrant pacemaker site 
which is automatic SBT or automatic supraventricular tachycardia, then the P wave is not going to look at all the same way as a normal sinus P wave. It's not going to be upright. It's not going to be round. Once the rate gets really fast, the P wave starts to smush into the T wave. It can, but this is also a common misconception because I will tell you, you can look at pediatric EKGs who have rates of 200 and you can still see that P wave. So it all has to do with how quickly your heart is able to depolarize and repolarize. So yes, it can bleed into the T wave, you know, where the T and the P wave start to blend together. And that's what makes it really challenging, I think, for these really rapid tachycardias that we see in adult patients. When I teach on altered mental status, I take a head-to-toe approach and then an in-to-out approach. And you can do this just by looking at any patient and it'll just prompt you. Okay, I'm going to start with CNS. What could go on head-to-toe, right? What can start with a CNS? Stroke, seizure, hydrocephalus, and then you work your way down. What in the heart could cause this? Okay, some kind of tachydysrhythmia, sure. But what's the blood pressure on this patient? And then is there something with the lungs? Is there some respiratory insufficiency? Work your way down. You get into the abdomen, the liver. Okay, hyperammonemia. That can cause altered mental status. The kidneys, hyperuremia. We can even see sometimes in pediatric patients, bowel obstructions or volvulus that causes altered mental status and certainly in the elderly as well. You go through that. Then you go in to out. So inside you think about anemias severe anemia that can cause altered mental status. We actually just had a patient the other day who came in with stroke-like symptoms but had a hemoglobin of four. So severe anemia as a cause because you're not able to deliver enough oxygen. And you think about severe infections like sepsis. So that's internal. And then you work your way external. External toxins and then the environment. And that's a perfect framework for thinking about altered mental status. And absolutely cardiac is one of your differentials. But you have to really consider them all, and you have to be able to work through that whole process of ruling things in and out and think about the worst-case scenario. The worst-case scenario might be that this patient is septic, and I just shocked them. Sepsis patients seem to be the other patients that can really generate some pretty profound tachycardias, in addition to the heat stroke. Absolutely. You know, if you look at any form of shock, you get an adrenaline dump. That's how your body compensates, and that's why it's really important to consider all forms of shock in these differentials. This whole episode is about how to think. You're trying to put into words how you think, and that's so hard. It wants to become so natural, it's hard to communicate that to someone else. Yes. Because is it possible that you don't look at your patients and go like head and chest? Like you're really not doing that. You're right. <laughs> right. You're right. It's just a framework. I'm just trying to give an alternative. What alternative I've, to grabbing things out of the air. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people forget differentials, which is why we make the decisions that we do. If we don't have a framework that works for us, then we're going to forget. We're going to forget what should be included. When I first start precepting students in the ER, one of the first things I do is ask them to list things that cause sinus tachycardia. Can you list off what you think of? When you think of sinus tachycardia? We're usually talking about some external toxins or a shock-like state or dehydration. 
whatever it is, some kind of stimulus that is activating the SA node to fire at a more rapid rate. Keep going with that list. How about pain? Absolutely. So that's not an absolute though. People can be in pain and not be tachycardic. Sure. But if the pain is causing you to have anxiety or fear or be angry, then it generates this whole other response, which has a component of anxiety and that psychosomatic component, but it's still an adrenaline dump. Mm -hmm. And do you think, this is a hard question to answer. I don't even know what I would say, but do you think pain, if, if the pain, like it's just like an orthopedic pain, right? Would you be willing to teach a new learner and say, well, like if their heart rate's over, blah, blah, I'm really not thinking pain is the cause. It's hard. You, I mean, you really shouldn't see uh, very high rates of tachycardia with pain alone. I don't know that you can have a particular cutoff. I think you just have to consider the whole patient. You have to consider what else is going on. I mean, you worry sometimes with pain. Well, are they bleeding somewhere? Is there some kind of hypovolemia, you know? When I see tachycardia by itself, that's when I start thinking of shock-like states. So then it would be helpful to use your framework of causes of shock, uh, which is a little bit of a different framework from altered mental status. Um, there are certainly uh, many other possibilities, uh, which is where that whole framework of top to bottom, in to out really comes into play. I mean, you can use it in so many different scenarios. Um, but you also have to really consider different causes of shock when you start seeing tachycardia by itself. What's the fastest sinus tachycardia that you remember seeing? I've seen sinus tachycardias in the 200s in kids, but typically under 220. In adults, I've seen sinus tachycardias around 200. Uh, that's probably the highest I've seen. And what was their pathology? Sepsis, dehydration. Those are the two most common. So you mentioned that SVT is an umbrella term. Sinus tachycardia is even an SVT. Yeah. True. Absolutely true. I mean, supraventricular tachycardia, anything above the ventricles that's causing tachycardia. If you were to break down SVT, you know, most SVT falls into the AV nodal reentry. That's about 60% of SVT. Okay, I wanted to ask you that, but I didn't know if that was a known thing, a known number. That's what all the textbooks say. That's okay. what all the cardiologists say. People say... More than AFib? Or is AFib not there? Not in, okay, so you caught me. <laughs> I'm not trying <laughs> to catch you. I told we're you We're just talking isn't. about SVT in general, and I'm saying, oh, yeah, it's anything. Sinus tachycardia. It's so the most common form of supraventricular tachycardia is sinus tachycardia. The nomenclature is so important. I think the word SVT is kind of a... Words, words can kind of send us down the wrong cognitive paths. I love what my friend Tom Boothley said, which is, this is undifferentiated tachycardia. That is how I teach it now. It's undifferentiated. Let yeah. the thinking begin. I love that too. I think that's really important because you're right. There's a lot of confusion over what's meant by SVT because technically AFib is, right. a flutter is, any reentry pathway is sinus tachycardia is, mm -hmm. as we just talked about. But when you talk about what has historically been termed, uh, you know, supraventricular tachycardias, where we're talking about AV nodal reentry tachycardias, AV reentry tachycardias, and automatic tachycardias, where you have an aberrant pacemaker site, 
the great majority of those are AV nodal reentry. It makes about 60, up about 60% of those types of SVT. The aberrant pathways, the reentry pathways, those are maybe about another 30%. And those are like your WPWs. The difference between a WPW and the other types of AVRT is that in WPW, the electrical conduction can go backwards. Mm -hmm. It can be propagated from the atria to the ventricles rather than just your reset from the ventricles to the atria. Otherwise, those make up the other 30%. And then the last would be your single unifocal aberrant pacemaker site. And those are really the hardest to treat. But those make up less than about 5% of these, you know, historical supraventricular tachycardias. But this is why adenosine works so well in SVT. It's short-acting. Its half-life is on the order of seconds. But you just need it to work long enough to reset these aberrant pathways or these aberrant pacemaker sites. So the SA node can resume its normal function and start over with normal electrical conduction. And this is the real danger of treating tachycardias with some of our second-line therapies, whether it be beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, because these are much longer acting. Their mechanism of action in both settings is to slow down conduction through the AV node. The problem is you better get it right if you're going to give a long-acting medication. If you're going to give diltiazem, it's going to be on board for three to four plus hours. If you accidentally gave someone with sepsis diltiazem because you thought they were in you know, SVT, uh, then you can really cause significant harm to these patients. Very good point. I thought you were going to talk about that diltiazem is contraindicated for WPW, but you're talking about the sinus tachycardia that needs their tachycardia. It's compensatory tachycardia, and blunting that is just like the opposite of what we want to do. It's the worst thing we can do. The job of a paramedic is so hard to make these emergency decisions and to see these undifferentiated tachycardias and trying to come up with a decision. And it's it's true. It's nice to be able to go back in hindsight, you know, six months later and say, oh, yeah, I, I do see that notching when I blow it up 500 times what it was on the monitor. <laughs> to try to help paramedics to make those decisions that carry the least risk and potentially the most benefit is so important. And it's so important not just for the patient, but it's so important because it is a stressful job and there is so much secondary trauma. When we make these mistakes and harm someone, it's with us for a long time. You know, we all have these ghosts. And so the hope is that we can give people the tools and the framework so it becomes less likely to make those mistakes. I mean, we can't prevent all of them. Yeah, and you were talking about, you know, blowing it up and seeing the P waves, but it wasn't just the EKG. He had a whole story, a whole story that leads the experienced clinician to heat stroke right? With it, somebody with a broad differential. And those lessons are just hard learned. They are hard learned. It's something you'll never forget now. And now here you are doing these podcasts and making sure everyone hears about it. A lot of the onus is not just on the schools, the paramedic programs to teach this, but for all of us who have been there to tell our stories and help people know that they're not alone when they make these mistakes. Perfection is an impossibility, but there are ways to be thoughtful about our management. 
make a decision based on well, what are the risk benefits of this treatment. One of my favorite quotes of all time is that medicine used to be simple, safe, and wholly ineffective. <laughs> right? But now it's complex, it's dangerous, but it's potentially very effective. Mm-hmm. We just have to make the right decisions at the right time. I had a mentor, he said, it would be really rare for a supraventricular tachycardia to cause hemodynamic instability as compared to a ventricular tachycardia. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's really kind of uncommon. People can tolerate these tachycardias as long as it is supraventricular. Do you agree with that general guideline or framework or approach? Knowing that you have a peed slant, who they really probably do tolerate it quite well. They do tolerate it well, but if you have someone with acute coronary syndrome or someone has underlying coronary artery disease, the heart can't work that hard for that long. You have a lot more time with SVT than you do with VTAC, but eventually the heart's going to tire out. I think of a patient who was in their 30s and they tolerated the SVT just fine over the course of a a six-hour rotation when we were in the ER. And it was really neat to see them sit there fairly stable for six whole hours at a Mm -hmm. really fast rate. The caveat, I think, is that they were in their 30s and had healthy myocardium. That's exactly it. We did watch them trend from stable to becoming less stable. What do you look at to determine hemodynamic stability versus instability? By definition, it would be hypotensive. There's always going to be a little bit of a gray area, but I think mentation is really critical. So if someone's not altered, they're not at the bitter end. And then the other piece is based on their blood pressure. But we accept a range, you know, just because someone has a heart rate of 200 uh, and a blood pressure of, you know, 85 over 60 doesn't mean I'm going to shock them. There's not a hard cutoff. Right, it is subjective, and our students are always looking for, like, tell me the rule. <laughs> and and it's, a clinical, it's a clinical picture that involves many signs and symptoms, but it sounds like, in listening to you, you've prioritized mental status and blood pressure. It's hard to shock someone who's absolutely awake and alert and talking to you. Now, if they're in VTAC, I know they don't have much time. If they're in SVT, as we just discussed, you have a little bit more time. Let's do the geriatric sepsis patient that's in AFib. They're also tachycardic, but they're tachycardic because of the fever, sepsis, whatever. How do you sort through whether uh, the AFib is the problem or the underlying problem is the problem? It goes back to your risk factors, to your differential, to having a framework. If this is a geriatric patient who's tachycardic and they had a known recent UTI or pneumonia or they've been coughing, and especially if they're febrile, signs, symptoms of sepsis, I'm going to be more likely to treat that before I am the AFib because it goes back to the risk benefit. So if I were to say, oh yeah, it's AFib RVR, I think more likely AFib RVR than sepsis. And I'm going to go ahead and give them diltiazem. You might've just killed them. Yeah. Right. But if you say it might be sepsis or it might be AFib RVR. And I know if I give diltiazem, I'm going to slow down their ability to compensate then let's start with a fluid bolus and let's see where we get with that. And if you start seeing that rate go down, then you have a pretty good reason to suspect that it's sepsis or hypovolemia or something other than AFib with RVR. Thank you for letting me have a slice of your day. 
Thanks so much for having me. So I'm going to have you back to talk about altered mental status. It's going to take like 10 hours. Anytime. <laughs> I would love it. Each episode of the Thinking Series features cover art made by a medic within our ranks. For this one, I need to thank my friend in San Francisco, William Sink. William, your drawing is absolutely perfect. I love it. Y'all should head over to MedicMindset.com where you can see the big version of his art. And I also added a zoomed-in picture of the sinus tachycardia from my heat stroke call. If you look closely, you'll notice the cowardly little P waves hiding in the T waves. Now, when it starts getting over 150, 160... <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, you don't have to apologize. Okay, so see how close I am? These are kind of heavy. Jarvis complained that I didn't have a mic stand, so that's why I went and bought one. Can I just do this? Can I talk this close? Completely. Okay. You sound perfect. Oh, good.